As you're finding your seat, please grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, grab one of those uh, in the chair in front of you. If there's not a chair in front of you, ask the person behind you to pass one up to you, however you want to do that. Um, grab a Bible. Everybody's going to need one in just a moment. So here at Redeemer, we are starting a new sermon series today. Uh, we're going to be working through the book of Second Timothy. The series is going to be entitled, Until He Appears. For those of you who are newer to our congregation, I just want to take a moment and explain why we study through books of the Bible. So this week, we're going to do an overview, and then we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and, and work our way through uh, the book of 1 Timothy. But why do we study the Scripture this way? Um, we study the Scripture this way because we want to hear from God more than we hear from man. And so if I'm setting the agenda for our preaching and our teaching, you're going to hear from me more than you're going to hear from God. And so we believe that the, the best pattern is to, to take a book and work through it. Uh, second, we want you to trust God's Word more than you trust man's Word. And the only way that I know to convince you to trust God's Word more than my voice or more than the voices that you hear all around you or perhaps even the voice in your head is to push you, push us deeply into God's Word. So for the next few months, we're going to spend our time in the book of 2 Timothy. We do not do so uh, to be intellectual. We do not do so to learn big theological words. We do not do so to elevate ourselves over against other churches, but we do so because we know that we need the Word of God to shape us, so we run to the Word of God. So I want to ask you to do a few things um, to dive deeply into 2 Timothy with us. First, I want to ask you to come and listen. Come and listen. Every Sunday at 9 o'clock or at 10.30, we're going to be opening the book of 2 Timothy, and we are going to be talking about it, reading it, praying through it, asking God to speak to us through His Word. So one way that you can um, commit to dive deeply with us is to commit to come and listen. So maybe um, that's as far as you're ready to go right now. Perhaps you're exploring the faith. Perhaps you have questions about the faith. Perhaps you're new to church. Perhaps this is the first time you've opened a Bible. But either way, that's, that's a commitment that we can all make. I'm going to come and gather with these people to hear from and be shaped by the book 2 Timothy. A second commitment is I would ask you, to, as much as you are able, to read and pray through 2 Timothy with us. I, I would ask, the book of 2 Timothy is four chapters, but to do a little... Jedi mind trick on you. The book of 2 Timothy is only about 15 verses longer than John chapter 6. So it's kind of like one long chapter of the Bible, okay? But I want to ask you to read the book of 2 Timothy with us as many times as you can over the next several months. Minimally, I would ask you to read it once a week. Um, and if you are new to Bible reading, we have made this document right here. Um, it's, it's on the back table, back there by the bulletins. And what this document is, is the simplest way that we have come up with, that we can find, to open the Scripture, hear from God, and speak back to Him in prayer. And so um, this method would take about 10 to 15 minutes a day, and we would commend it to you as a way to get started in Bible reading and, and prayer if that's not something that you've ever done or not something that you're comfortable doing. This could be your guide. A second thing that I would love to point out to you, for those of you that really want to take this plunge into 2 Timothy, if you have five extra dollars lying around, if not, I'll buy it for you. Just I'll give you five bucks. Just tell me. But this is um, it's called the ESV Scripture Journal, and it's the book of 1 and 2 Timothy. 
And what you get is one page of Bible and one blank page for notes and thoughts and prayer. And so um, I find that as I read something multiple times, this really helps me. I also find that if I lose it, I'm in big trouble. So don't steal, Matt. That would not be a fun, practical joke to take that from me, okay? But grab one of those and, and use that as a way to say, I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to read, I'm going to read. Because we believe that God is going to speak to us through his word. And the more we dive in, the more he's going to meet us there. So your commitment to um, diving into 2 Timothy could look as simple as this. And this is what I do with my eight-year-old son on a daily basis. We just open to a passage of the scripture and we pray something like this. God, would you please help us to understand this and believe it? Amen. And then we read and we talk about it on an eight-year-old level and we talk about some things that God would want for us on an eight-year-old level and we go about our day. And I believe that the Holy Spirit meets with us in that on an eight-year-old level. And I believe that he would meet with you in something that simple if we would just commit our way to walking in his word. And I want to plead with you to do that. So come and listen, read and pray. A third commitment, if you really want to go all the way with being shaped by this, is come and discuss. And so in our community groups that, that meet throughout Nashville or throughout North Nashville on a weekly basis, um, we're going to be opening 2 Timothy, talking about it, praying about it. So go to your community group, eager to discuss, eager to dive in, eager to be shaped by um, 2 Timothy. If you're not a part of a group, come and find me, and I will help you find a group. If you lead a group and I explode your group this week, I'm sorry, but it's for the glory of God, and we'll just figure it out, okay? So, um, and I'm not really sorry, but we'll still figure it out, okay? Um, so I want to ask you to come and listen, read and pray, and dive deeply, come and discuss um, 2 Timothy with us, because we believe that God led a man named Paul to write this letter to a man named Timothy for the good of Timothy, for the good of those in Timothy's church, and for the good of those in the church of Jesus who would always read this letter, which he inspired by his spirit. We believe that, and therefore we want to be shaped by it. Ashley, you can go ahead and come up now. Aren't you glad I didn't make you stand up there the whole time? Yeah. So as a way to kind of drive my point home, and kind of just as a way to, to make sure that you at least have read First Timothy, or excuse me, Second Timothy one time. I want you to get a Bible or a smart device, however you do that, and turn to the book of Second Timothy. It's not going to be on the screens. I want you to follow along in a Bible. I'm going to give you a minute to find it. If, if you have no idea where to find Second Timothy, just tap the person next to you on the shoulder. They'll help you get there. There's no shame here in asking for help. So I'm going to give you a second. This is Ashlyn. Ashlyn has been selected to read the entire book of 2 Timothy to us this morning. And when she gets to all the names in chapter 4, just consider the excellence of saying all of those. Okay? But now you're not from the South, are you? No, but I looked the names up and I wrote phonetic spellings. Oh, wow. Okay. But I don't know if they're right because you never know. Just go with confidence and these folks from the South will be like, yes, sister. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. We ready? The book of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience 
as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Aristus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter, 
Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And so you have heard and read the letter of 2 Timothy. Thank you, Ashlyn. Uh, for a small fee, Ashlyn will come to your house each morning and, and walk you through 2 Timothy. She'll be right up here taking reservations uh, after church. Um, ben Morrow read in the first service, he said he would do it for a large fee. So you can, you can figure that out, okay? Um, seriously, this letter was written to be a letter. It was written without chapters, without verses, and intended to be heard in one setting, just as we heard it. So I didn't force you to sit and read um, just to prove a point as much as to absorb the totality of the message that, that Paul was sharing to Timothy. So this was a letter written by a man named Paul to a man named Timothy. Um, Paul was a messenger of Jesus, a church starter traveling all around um, Asia Minor and um, the Middle Eastern area of the world. He was an advancer of God's mission. And at the time of writing this, he was in prison, uh, soon to die for his life. And most scholars believe and, and are firm in, in understanding that this is the last preserved letter that Paul ever wrote um, that we have for us here as Second Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a friend of Paul, an understudy of Paul, a fellow laborer with Paul. To put Timothy in modern um, church vernacular, we would say that, that Timothy was um, mentored by Paul. We would say that Timothy was discipled by Paul. And now Paul is in prison, soon to die, and he's left Ephesus, uh, one of the churches that he um, started, in the care of Timothy. And that is the letter that we get. And so as we dive into this today, uh, the first thing I want to do, and this is the first point if you, if you want to take notes, the first thing I want to do is I want to answer three helpful questions that, that if we don't answer them, they might prevent you from studying this letter. Uh, the questions are, uh, regard around the fact that this is a personal letter, this is a pastoral letter, and this is a persecution letter. So this is a personal letter, a pastoral letter, and a persecution letter. I don't strive for alliteration, but sometimes it just comes. We go with it, and it sounds like I know what I'm doing as a preacher. So, um, so the first question is, this is a personal letter. How can I benefit from a personal letter between two people? How can I benefit from a personal letter between two people. Um, several years ago, my grandmother passed away, and my wife and I found ourselves alone in her house cleaning out her belongings. And in the closet where she had, literally, I'm not exaggerating, 60-plus purses with the tag still on them, um, no receipts where we could take them back, um, we also found her love letters from her 18, 19, 20 realm. Um, to and from, I guess, I don't know. They were in there. And... As every good grandson does, we, we read them, every word of them. Um, and in these personal letters, they weren't to us, they weren't about us. No one even knew we existed because at that point we didn't. But what we saw was a side of my grandmother's personality, what she valued, how she communicated, um, a side of her that in many ways we hadn't seen before. And it was very valuable for us to digest personal letters between my grandmother and other people. And I think, likewise, on a much grander scale, because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, this letter allows us to see the, the heart of Paul toward 
Timothy. It allows us to see the, the heart of Paul toward another person. And, and one thing that just jumps off these pages to me is how much heart there was in Paul. How much emotion there was in Paul. How not stale he was. How not stuffy he was. How much he really related to Timothy and to these other names that pop up in this book, not just as people who were doing ministry so that their ministry could be successful, but as people that he loved, people that he wanted to flourish, people that he wanted to know Christ and be used of Christ and know the power of Christ. And so to a church of a bunch of people like me who can be overly intellectual, overly theoretical, and overly theological, I think it's really important for us to see that the gospel, yes, it does first orient us to God, but the gospel also changes our orientation toward one another. And so I think in chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul writes, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. I don't think Paul is just using the vernacular common way to start a letter. I think Paul had a deep love for Timothy because of what Christ had done in Paul's life, because of what Christ had done in Timothy's life, and because they shared in that together. So I think the gospel had created between Paul and Timothy a deep, rich love that could not have been there if it were not for the work of God in both of them. And so the work of God in us, the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God are intended to first, yes, change how we relate to God, but second, to then radically change how we relate to others. And so this personal letter just cries out to us that the gospel affects human relationship. That those who have been loved are able to love. Those who have received mercy are able to be merciful. Those who have been served by Christ are able to serve others. And it's not sinful. And it's not wrong to have deep affection for people creating the image of God and redeemed by Jesus. And it's not wrong to have a deep abiding unity and fellowship and community that's rooted in the gospel. I think that flows and just oozes up out of the pages of 2 Timothy. And so rather than the fact that it being a personal letter create a barrier that says, this is not for me, I think it being a personal letter actually lifts a veil to let us see a side of Paul that perhaps we wouldn't have seen without this letter. And see, while as robustly theological and robustly intellectual as he was, he was filled with love. He had a warm heart, a warm relationship with with the churches that God had allowed him to plant. And he yearned with all of, his build, all of his being that they would know Christ in the way that he did. And so I would hope that we as the people of Redeemer, as we allow 2 Timothy to shape us, would allow the personal nature of this letter to do some work in us that is rich and deep. Lest you think I'm making too much of a few verses, I would argue that all of chapter 4, where Paul's name and names, And he's talking about how so-and-so has helped him. And he yearns to see so-and-so. And and -and so-and-so turned his back on the faith. He's doing all of that because he he is yearning for 
companionship and he's grieving over the lost companionship and he's yearning for fruitfulness and he wants Timothy to be protected from those who are sowing evil against him. And so there's this personal nature to the work of interpersonal nature to the work of God in Christ that we see in this personal letter. And I hope that it captivates us. A second question flows from a pastoral letter. How can I benefit from a letter written by a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church? How can I benefit from a letter by a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church? Most of you are probably going, man, I'm not a pastor. God's not called me to preach. I'm not leading the church. So why do I need to dive deeply into a letter from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church? There's several reasons why. First, a letter from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church will inform our spiritual needs. A letter to a pastor about a, excuse me, from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church will inform our spiritual needs. So if God leads Paul to instruct Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, to be ready to preach the word in season and out of season, because that's good for the people, then what that tells us is we need God's word proclaimed to us for our good. So a letter from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring informs our spiritual needs. I would say to you, take what you think you need and let it be shaped by what Paul tells Timothy you do need. It's a humbling exercise, by the way. Go and read. Let God do His work. Second, a letter from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church shapes our vision of the church. It shapes our vision of the church. It's the church of Jesus, to trust in Jesus, and this letter from Paul to help Timothy pastor the church shapes what the vision of the church is. Third, a letter from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church should remind us that pastors do not have a special relationship to Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Pastors do not, N-O-T, have a special relationship to Jesus. We are all sinners. We all need the gospel. We're all reconciled to God equally in Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. Our eternity is in Jesus. Our endurance comes from the Spirit and through the Word. And we will all stand equally at the foot of the cross today and equally before the throne of God in eternity. And there is no hierarchy within the church of Jesus. We all stand equally before Him. Pastors do not have a special relationship with God. They have a special work to do in the church, but they do not have a special relationship with God. And we must destroy that. We must destroy that. Here in the, the cultural Bible South, I do not believe that we, first of all, I believe we elevate pastors to a special place in our minds. I do not believe we do it to humble ourselves. I believe we do it to get ourselves off the hook. See, if I can elevate the pastor to a special category, then all these things that Paul's exhorting Timothy to do, they don't apply to me. The pastor should do them for me. He should preach. He should exhort. He should do the work of an evangelist. He should do the work of a missionary. He should carry out the ministry. He should love others. He should care for others. He should be at my hospital bed. He should counsel me because only he can do it. And elevating pastors to that extra level gets us off the hook. So if we're going to do that, can I elevate someone else up there? 
But if we say, no, pastors don't have special relationship to God, we're all equal, then all these exhortations flow equally to us. Preach the word. All of you. Carry out the ministry. All of you, because God's given us all one. Do the work of an evangelist. All of you. Because God's called us all to do it. We also, fourth, must recognize that pastors are not the special servants of the church. Pastors are not the special servants of the church. So what is a pastor? It's a leader set apart to give leadership to the church. But the church is calling to be faithful to the Lord. It applies to everybody. The church is calling, the church is calling to proclaim the gospel. It applies to everybody. The church is calling to know and live and believe the word. It applies to everybody. The church is calling to use your life for the glory of God. It applies to everybody. Pastors and elders are given to lead us in that, not to do it for us. So a letter from a pastor to a pastor about pastoring a church is meaningful for us because the Lord wants us who are his children to be busy building the church, to be busy loving others, to be busy serving others, to be busy taking the gospel to our neighbors and friends and to the ends of the earth. So as Paul exhorts Timothy, believe that Paul is exhorting you. Fifth, in a room this size, we have this gathering twice. It is very likely that the Lord is stirring someone in this room to use their life for the ministry of the Word in a particular way where we devote the totality of our work and our life to building the church and leading the church. That's called eldering. It's called pastoring. Missionaries are simply people who go out from the church to start new churches where they can do that. It's very likely that the Lord is stirring someone or a family to take a move toward um, a, a full-time all of my life used for the work of ministry type calling. And if the Lord's stirring that in you, don't be afraid of it. We're not going to be afraid of it. We're going to celebrate it. If the Lord's stirring that in you, I pray that Second Timothy will help stir that in you. That as you read Paul's exhortations to Timothy, you'll go, yeah, I think the Lord is setting me apart to live my life in this particular way. So I want to be really, perhaps I'm confusing, I'm saying don't elevate pastors, but understand that God calls pastors, right? Like we all stand before the Lord equally, we're all called to love and serve the church equally. But God does set apart leaders to lead churches. And the Bible calls those pastors, calls those elders, calls those shepherds. And the Lord would set apart some of us to go and serve him in that way. And we love to be a part of that with you. So a personal letter, a pastoral letter. Third, a persecution letter. How can I benefit from a letter about enduring persecution for the cause of Christ? Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8, that he writes from prison and he's in prison because of his faithfulness to Jesus. He also says that in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 15, and in chapter 4, that not only is he being persecuted by the government for his faith in Christ, but he is being, turned, he is being persecuted by others. Other people are turning away from him. Even Christians are turning away from him because of his faithfulness to Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 tell us that this is not uncommon and it will continue. What Paul says is those who wholly devote themselves to the life of following and obeying and loving and serving Jesus will endure hardship and persecution from the world and sometimes even from the church. Now we have come out of a 50-year period 
in America that still kind of reigns in the south, southern part of the U.S. where Christianity is a celebrated majority. Christianity is a celebrated majority. But the church has always thrived when Christianity becomes a persecuted minority. Now look, let's not go seeking after it, but let's understand that as we go forward in faithfulness to Jesus, more and more we will not be celebrated for that, but we will be looked down upon, and then we'll be shunned, and then we'll be cast aside, and then we'll be persecuted. So let us see the hardship as a blessing, and let us see the hardship as a calling to this question, how much do I love Jesus? How much am I willing to lose for the cause and the name and the word of Jesus? Because when it's easy to follow after Christ, there are lots of other reasons to come and hang out with the Christians. But when you might lose your life for being here today, the only reason to be here today is because the Spirit of God is drawing you to Jesus. So let us ask ourselves this question. How much am I willing to lose for the cause of Jesus? And then a second question. How much am I willing to help those who are struggling with their faith in Jesus? How much am I willing to help those who are struggling in their faith with Jesus? So in the early church, right after the time of Jesus and the time of Acts, the time of the apostles, the time of Paul, the church was a persecuted minority. In the 300s, um, the, the, the church, Christianity, became the official religion of the state. And so the church became the celebrated majority. And then over time, the church started to lose that status as majority. And here's what happened. The church had to wrestle with, with this question. How many times can you bow the knee to Caesar and reject Jesus as Lord and still be restored to the faith? And so the church was eager to help those who were struggling with their devotion to Jesus. So how much am I willing to suffer? How much can I lose and still be content in Christ? And how much am I willing to help those who are struggling to stand up for Christ and his word and the gospel? Those things go together when the church faces persecution. And this is a letter to a persecuted church to help us with that. So three questions. It's a personal letter. Should I still read it? Yes. It's a pastoral letter. I'm not in ministry professionally. Should I still read it? Yes. It's a persecution letter. I don't sit under persecution. Should I still read it? Yes. Why? Why? Why pick First or Second Timothy as the book for us to spend the next few months in? And that leads to the final point, facing eternity. I have found that truth, honesty, and what matters most floods to the surface when people know their life is coming to an end. Truth, honesty, and pursuing that which values what we value most comes flooding to the surface at the end of our lives. Have you ever sat by someone's deathbed? They didn't really care what was on Oprah earlier in the day, did they? Or what was on Fox News earlier in the day? On your deathbed, you celebrate what matters most to you and you want to pursue it. Paul is writing with this urgency to say, I know Christ I'm going to die, and it's going to be my gain. And I want you to know Christ in that way. Look at chapter 4, verse 6, 7, and 8 as we conclude this morning. Listen to the word of Paul. 
He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. So he says, I'm going to die. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now look up. Look up. Don't keep reading. Look up. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my life's being poured out. I'm going to die, and I celebrate it because I know Jesus. Jesus knows me. He's given me his righteousness. He's kept me faithful. He's kept me faithful all the way to the end, and I don't have to fear death, and I don't have to fear his appearing, because when he appears, I'm going to be like him, and I'm going to be with him, and I'm going to stand with him forever. I face death with joy, and therefore I write this letter with a whole lot of urgency. And I hope you hear that and go, I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of hope. I want to be able to face the end and say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my race. And Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to redeem me, whatever may happen to this body. Who cares? Because I belong to Jesus. I hope you want to say that. Now look, look back down at your Bible. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do you see that? It's yours if you're in Christ. The invitation is extended to all of us. Those who love is appearing. That is those who say, everything I have is in Jesus. Everything that I have rests in what He says is me. Everything that I have rests in the crown of righteousness that He purchased on a cross for me. Everything that I have is in His resurrected body where He lives and reigns and rules and is coming again. Those who know Him love His appearing and we walk through this world with a sense of urgency and hope because we look for the day when He will come again. Do you hear that? If you're in Christ, it's yours. If you're in Christ, you stand affirmed and forgiven and righteous and reconciled and you have nothing to fear and you can live this life free from trying to earn anything out of it because Jesus is with you. And he says it will be true for all who long for his appearing. So we entitled this series, Until He Appears. Because until he appears, he wants us trusting him, clinging to him, clinging to his word, and building his kingdom. Until he appears, he wants Redeemer Church, trusting him, trusting his word, trusting to follow after him, and to build his kingdom. This is what Jesus wants for us and from us and what he's eager to do in us. And here's the invitation. If somebody drug you here today, you have no desire to be here. If somebody drug you here today because you had some questions about Jesus and they said, come and come and talk I hear this guy talk about Jesus. If, if you're here and you're like, man, I have lots of questions and I want to believe, but I'm not sure how to believe, hear this. The invitation is for all who will repent and believe and come to Jesus. Paul says, not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. He will change your heart. He will forgive your soul. He will renew you and restore you and give you life in his name if you will cry out to him. So if you want to cry out to him today, I want to help you do that. Come and talk to me. I'll sit right down here. I'll hang out down here after the service. I would love to help you cry out to Jesus and meet him and be saved. Team, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come. At this time, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a meal that Jesus instituted, but more than that, 
The Lord's Supper is our ongoing reminder that all we have is Jesus. It's our ongoing reminder that our calling is to love his appearing. It's our ongoing reminder that because of his broken body and his spilled blood, there's forgiveness, there's life, there's restoration, there's reconciliation, and there's hope. So here at Redeemer, we invite anyone who has placed your faith in Jesus for salvation and profess that faith to the church. We invite you to take this bread and cup with us as a reminder that Jesus is everything. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask that you let the bread and the cup pass, but we would say this is the day where you can be restored and renewed and commit your life to Christ. And we would love to help you do that. Someone sitting beside you, someone who brought you here today, would love to help you commit your life to Jesus. So these guys are going to pass out the bread. They're going to pass out the cup. We're going to sing. I'll come back in a few minutes and we'll take them together.